0: Hello everybody, I'm Nick Tookie. I'm the Department of Conservation's Threatened Species Ambassador and I'm very proud to bring you this Sound of Science podcast. Mm-hmm. The purpose of this podcast is that uh, we want to tell you all the stories of our amazing scientists and technical experts out there looking after the nature, working with us to make sure that we know everything there is to know about our threatened species. Today I have the privilege of having my colleague Hannah Hendricks who's a marine species support officer from our marine team in the Department of Conservation. Uh, G'day Hannah, how are you? i um, great. Thanks, Nick. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, I thought it was a really good idea to talk to you um, now at this time of year because the topic of your work really is starting to bubble up again. So maybe if you could start by telling us a
1: little bit about what you do and what's involved. Sure. Um, so I provide national support for our marine mammal incidents around the country, supporting our rangers on the ground who are responding to strandings and things like that. Um, I provide a link between DOC and researchers, um, coordinate our protocols and procedures that we follow and manage the data that comes out of these events. Strandings are always a hot topic, particularly in New Zealand, aren't they? They are. We seem to get a lot of them. Do
0: we get more in New Zealand than we get than perhaps other countries get?
1: We are a hot spot for marine mammal strandings. Um, that's mostly because we just have so many species that come past our shores, whether they live around here or they migrate past us. We get about half the world's marine mammal species coming by New Zealand at some point.
0: What is it, do you think, about... There's something about whales and dolphins, isn't there, that just makes people kind of feel all the feels? So, you know, do you get caught up in people's kind of emotional connection
1: to what's going on, particularly with regard to strandings? Definitely, it can be hard for people to separate their emotions from the event. Um, obviously, you know, whales might be making sounds on a beach or it might look like they're crying and... Yeah, people find it hard to detach themselves from sort of reality in some of those situations. Do we know much about why whales do strand? The short answer is no, not really. It's really complicated. Um, there are lots of different reasons why whales might strand, and it sort of depends on the species and where you are. So, dolphin species like pilot whales, common dolphins, um, they might strand um, when they're like looking for food. Say there's orcas going by, and they're trying to get away from them. Or if there's places like Fairbairn Spit, that act like a natural whale trap. Um, and like these gently shelving beaches, like in Golden Bay, their echolocation uh, might not work very well, and so they might not know that the water is getting shallower and then they can be caught out when the tide disappears from underneath them, basically.
0: You mentioned echolocation. Do you want to just explain a little bit more about
1: what that is and why that becomes a problem? Yeah, so basically they send these sound waves out from their heads um, and they bounce off substrates and they are received back by the whales or the dolphins, sorry, Um, and they tell them basically what's in front of them. So it's like sonar? Yeah. Same as what ships use. Yeah, just like sonar. So... They can use those to tell where the shore is or where food is, things like that. But when these really gently sloping beaches come along, they aren't going to be... Providing such a strong signal, especially when it's like muddy or silty, um, and that can get them confused.
0: How big of a deal are strandings
1: from a conservation perspective for a species? And I suppose it varies species to species. It will definitely vary species to species. So, with pilot whales in New Zealand, they're classified as not threatened. So, and these things have been happening for millennia, you know, these whales have been stranding on Fios, but for as long as we know. Um, and so it's unlikely that they're going to have a big impact on their overall population size and we haven't seen that as time's gone on.
0: And what are some of the other species that strand?
1: Um, common dolphins, once again, that's more like mistakes being made or being forced up onto the beach from um, predators. Um, so they can often be refloated, which is great. Um, pygmy sperm whales is another really common one, which most people might not even know about. It's this small um, toothed whale that um, often washes up in Mahia Peninsula. Um, and also beach whales is another one that often washes up on our shores. Um, we've got... 13 species of beaked whales in New Zealand and grey's beaked whales are the most common ones to wash up around the country.
0: Whale strandings are huge, right? Like they are a huge logistical
1: kind of... Definitely, yeah, Yeah, especially when you've got like 1,000 volunteers on hand as well that you've got to manage... There's a lot going on. And so do you get involved in that? Uh, no, not really. That's the lucky job of the rangers on the ground. Um, but I do just support the rangers so they know you know, what protocols they need to follow, if there's any species-specific things. And as I said before, um, like getting them in touch with the researchers that might be interested in those species.
0: When whales do strand and it becomes apparent that we can't get them back out to the water and we've dealt with our grief about that... Um, What kinds of um, scientific information do we want to collect to try and understand what's going on?
1: Standard DOC protocol is to take a tissue sample, so that's basically just a small section of skin from each animal, and that goes into what's called the New Zealand Cetacean Tissues Archive, which is managed by Auckland University on behalf of the department, um, and so that's got samples of basically all the different species that have stranded on New Zealand shores, there's like over 3,000 samples in there or something like that, it's pretty amazing, um, and from that we can get obviously genetics, so you can determine what species they are, if it's not clear on on the shore especially important for our beach whale species where there's 13 different ones and you know to the untrained eye you wouldn't know which one it is um, you can get gender um, and you can uh, get like uh, family relations and then there are some people doing some work on trying to age them from DNA as well which would be um, pretty interesting um, so that's the standard sample we take, but in some cases with some species or depending on what researchers are focusing on, we might get further samples or get the whole animal um to Massey University or another research institute for a necropsy to examine what the cause of death is. So this happens with our hectares and Maui dolphins in particular. Um, Doc's got a contract with Massey University to get all of those animals examined so we can learn more about why they might have died. Um, unfortunately it is actually very hard to determine why things um, have died and we may or may not actually get any useful information out of this.
0: Do we have, given that we've had this database for a long time, for particularly for species like heat and do we have any kind of ideas um, that have come out? From the data?
1: Yeah, definitely. So with the genetics work in particular, we get things like the Maui dolphin abundance estimates, so we know how many they are. Um, That's doing like mark recapture work. Um, And then with like the necropsy stuff, we can find out if they're dying from certain diseases like toxoplasmosis and work on how we can potentially mitigate those sort of threats. So it's a
0: bit kind of like CSI after the event. A little bit, not so glamorous. (laughs) Not so fast either. Not so fast. (laughs) So given um, that it is summer... And that people, just to stray off the topic of strandings briefly, though, give a, let's talk about the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Sure. So people are out and about. That they, sort of, We've all crawled out from behind our computers and are hanging out at the beach, for those of us that drive a desk like me. Um, and so the, there's a lot more seeing dolphins and whales around and interacting with them. Just generally, what are the rules so that people know how to behave? Because, you know, we know people get a bit like... Justin Bieber, whales, dolphins. Um, How can people behave that makes
1: them legal? Yeah, so the Marine Mammal Protection Regulations, which is under the Marine Mammals Protection Act, um, basically lays out some regulations that people should follow um, when they're around marine mammals. Um, Particularly if you're on a boat, you need to give them space. 50 metres to whales is how far you need to stay away. Um, No more than three boats um, in the vicinity, and you can't swim with whales. Also, you're not supposed to drive drones um, 150 metres near a whale, um, which people often don't know about, Um, and these are quite important to follow because it gives these um, dolphins or whales space to, you know, rest, feed and um, socialise with each other.
0: And particularly if they've got babies with them
1: as well. Exactly, they're often they're actually specific rules about when they have babies with them. Okay. So, so it's essentially just give them space. Give them lots of space. Yeah. Yeah. Don't disturb them. Don't stress them out. And you know, you can cause them harm, and they can cause you harm. So back to the
0: beach, back to the stranding. Can whales, um, or do- well, maybe dolphins, but can whales cause people harm if they come across a stranded whale? What are the things people need to do to keep themselves safe? Because you know, I've seen you know, flippers and tail flukes and things sort of thrashing around. You wouldn't want to get sconned with one of them.
1: Yep, so the tail of a whale or a dolphin is very powerful. Um, it's lots of muscles in there, and that can definitely cause you harm. So definitely keeping, you know, a metre away from that tail is really important. Um, also, obviously, these most of these, well, all of these dolphins have teeth, and some of the whales have teeth, so keeping fingers away from mouths is really important too. Right, you don't want to accidentally get feel like getting your hand caught in a car door yeah. you, with teeth
0: <laughs> what about so people have a lot of theories you know I've I've heard people talk about um impacts of plastic uh maybe climate change maybe seismic stuff going on in the water can you talk us through what we know or don't know what, where the evidence is on that stuff
1: Sure, so with regards to plastics, um, we actually have only had about one or two instances of finding macroplastics inside whales and dolphins. What's macroplastic? Stuff that you can see with the naked eye, basically. So that's different to your microplastics, which is plastics that are broken down into really tiny pieces. Um, And there is some work going on where people are looking into the blubber and stuff of whales and dolphins to see if they can figure out if that's affecting our whale and dolphin species in New Zealand. Um, climate change is a big one, quite hard to comment on, it's like so hard to investigate these matters, um, but it's definitely possible that changes in the ocean temperatures will affect the food sources and all sorts of things like that will have flow on effects um, to these species. Seismic surveying, definitely a big cause of concern for lots of people. Um, so we do have a code of conduct for seismic surveying companies that they need to follow to minimise those impacts on our species. And so I presume we're collecting data
0: as we go as about what, what else is going on in the environment. When we come across those strandings,
1: yeah. So each time there's a stranding, uh, the rangers will collect a range of data about the animal and the conditions, and they'll fill out a form, and that will go into our national database of um, strandings.
0: Sometimes, when there's a
1: stranding, even um, though
0: you know there might be lots of people there to help, uh, it doesn't go well, and we can't put them back out in the water for whatever reason. And at that point. A decision has to be made uh, in terms of euthanizing the the whales. Can can you? I've talked to a couple of rangers that have had to do this, and I suspect it might be the worst job in the world. Can you tell us what 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 that's about and how we make those decisions and what's involved, and just so the public understand? Because I think sometimes it's really hard to read that a bunch of whales turned up, but there were a thousand people there, but then we had to get rid of you know, had to kill them anyway. So. Talk us through that so that people understand
1: how we come to that. Sure. Um, This is, again, going to depend on the species that turns up. Because some, like beaked whales and pygmy sperm whales, if they're washing up, it's probably because they're sick anyway. But for pilot whales and stuff, which we know can be refloated, our staff are going to be monitoring their condition as... um, the day or days go on and when they've been refloated several times over several days it's quite often that their condition will be deteriorating and that will be quite obvious and so if they if they decide that you know their, their condition means that they aren't going to be able to survive even if they are sort of put back in the water and if they've come back in several times um, then they might, might make that unfortunate decision to um, euthanize the animal and that's just so that they don't have you know, suffer a long, drawn-out death. It's a humane choice, um, but it's not taken lightly. No, it's difficult for the staff involved, isn't it? It's very emotional for the staff, very emotional for the people who have been helping out on the beach.
0: So for the people that do turn up, and again, it's summer we're all roaring around, hanging out at the beach, um, what's the best way that people can help? Let's say that there is a pilot whale stranding and people arrive en masse to help. What is the best thing they can do to be helpful and not a hindrance?
1: Well, something you can do in advance is take a Project Jonah Marine Mammal Medic course. Oh, I've done one of those. You have? That's yes. great. <laughs> yeah, so they will basically teach you all you need to know about how to help in marine mammal stranding, um, which includes providing first aid to the dolphins and how to actually refloat them. Wildly, the whale. I don't know if that's its name,
0: but <laughs> like there <that>. are
1: life-size <laughs> yeah. whales and dolphins there to practice on. <laughs> yeah. So if you've done that, that's great. You'll be able to be um, a big assistance. Um, but even if you haven't done that, if Doc's requesting volunteers, which they'll often do through social media or the radio, um, you can come down. And even if you aren't necessarily helping directly with the whales, we always need people to help with, say, um, traffic control, You know, food even. We really need to keep all our volunteers safe and healthy, so... Assistance with that sort of stuff is great. Um, we might be making chains to the sea to get water back and forth. All things like that are really helpful.
0: And what kinds of things can they bring down? Is it still the thing and
1: they used to say you bring wet sheets, you know, sheep's down for wetting? Yeah, we have a list of everything that you might need to bring on our website. But um, if you want to be in the water helping, it's great if you bring a wetsuit. And you need to be self-sufficient. So your car should have plenty of petrol in it. You need to bring your own water, your food, everything like that. If you're planning to stay the night, you need to be prepared with the tent, sleeping bag, etc., yeah, and maybe some first aid stuff as well.
0: Right. So, but the the overarching
1: message here is go get through Project Jonah. Yep, and do your mammal It's course. The best way to be prepared to help with the whale stranding, and then you'll be called out when there's one happening in your area.
0: The other thing I wanted to talk about because I've been um, talking a lot lately with uh, iwi groups who are involved with whale strandings and what it means to them, um, and you know, you often hear about the whale bone, particularly jaw bones, that kind of thing. Can you tell us a bit about that process and what's happened um, for for our work with local iwi?
1: Yeah, so um, iwi treat these species as taonga species and they they see them as their ancestors Um, and they have a lot of sort of um, traditional knowledge about recovering the bones and carving them into jewellery and other various things. So we work closely with iwi in each area on establishing protocols that will work with them um, when strandings happen. And we consult them with every step of the stranding as well. So whether we want to, you know, euthanise them, take a sample, bury them, or, you know, send them off for an necropsy. Iwi is always consulted um, because they are such important um, taonga species for them. Yeah. And they're, as you say, they're their
0: ancestors, so you wouldn't want someone making decisions about your grandfather without you having a you know some kind of say so You've got a really neat job in DOC. There would be a lot of people out there that would say this would be their dream job, (laughs) right? Yes. What is it that, um, what sort of journey did you go on with your education and perhaps some of your work experience that got you here? What is it that motivates you to want to help out in this, particularly this marine mammal stranding space?
1: So I studied at Victoria University of Wellington. I did an undergrad in marine biology and ecology and biodiversity and then I did a Masters in Marine Conservation um, at Victoria as well. Um, and I, as I was finishing up that degree, I started volunteering for DOC, cleaning up some marine mammal data. I guess what motivates me is like thinking about, you know, what the marine life around New Zealand used to look like. You know, southern right whales um, breeding in Wellington Harbour and things like that. And the fact that we might be able to see that again in the future is definitely really motivating. I hope that we get to see that or at least future generations will get to see that. Yeah, well
0: Southern Right Whales is a nice wee story of just a slowly but surely comeback, isn't it?
1: Definitely. And you know, we had our own Southern Right Whale encounter in Wellington this year with so called Matariki the whale, um spending over a week in our in our harbour which was Really exciting experience um, for everyone in our team, and it's probably my favorite thing of the year, actually. because um, you know so often we're dealing with strandings and stuff, and it's quite sad. but like this was actually a really sort of happy, exciting thing to be dealing with. and like all the public was really excited. like people were breaking the law, stopping on motorways <laughs> and going out in thunderstorms just to look at this thing, like get a glimpse of it. so um that was a great experience. and got to work with, you know, the harbour master, the police um, and the council on this. Um, we obviously uh, had to provide advice to the council about the fireworks, which was a brand new experience that none of us expected to have Did to do. Did they cancel <laughs> them in the end? They postponed them to the following weekend. Because they didn't want to upset the whale. We didn't know how the whale would react, and with all the extra vessels on the water, we thought it would be safer to postpone.
0: Yes, I love that story. That, that is a real story of Wellington, the wildlife capital, was not it? Yeah. Like puts off its fireworks display because it doesn't want to disturb the whale. Um, what is the most unusual thing that you have ever experienced washing up around the country?
1: Well, I haven't personally seen it, but this year there was this thing called a spoon worm that washed up. Did you hear about this? Somebody sent me a picture of it because people think that I know what all the things are. Um, What was it described as? Um, Described as looking like a half-cooked sausage with teeth or a certain male appendage. (laughs) Take caution when you Google imaging (laughs) search.
0: So my grossest... Marine mammal story, and because it's because they are gross, right? You come across a festering Definitely. dead corpse of a marine mammal, it's never flipper, right? It's never it smells, it's yuck,
1: the eyeballs hang out, it's not fun. Yeah. And so, <laughs> I'm lucky enough not to have smelled a decomposing dolphin yet.
0: In this particular instance, which was many years ago now, I just want to qualify, so many years ago, um, but it was while we were collecting biopsy samples for stranded Hector's Dolphins. And uh, the ranger in question uh, uh, won't even geographically locate it. Somewhere in New Zealand, the ranger in question, who shall not be named, went to um, a report of a stranded Hector's Dolphin. And, you know, and Hector's dolphins they're only little, aren't they? So they're only... 1.5. Thank you. And that's why you're the expert. Uh, and so it had been there for some days. So it was sort of blown up, somewhat distended. Kind of The description I got was it was like a big purple grape. And so he put on the white suit and he thought, I'm not going to let this get me. Right? so I'm not going to. I, I know what's going to happen here. So he took his knife to get the biopsy sample because we really needed them for the database, and he leaned over the dolphin and just gave it a little nick on the other side because he didn't want it to burst open, like you know. But <clears throat> it was so distended and so. Blown up in the hot sun, that as soon as he nicked it, it just split open and exploded into his face, and he had his mouth open and went down his throat. And I said, Is that a risk manager? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's right. And so, so in hindsight, you know, in these days, that wouldn't occur. However, I said to him, What did you do? Like, What do you do when a dead dolphin explodes into your mouth? And he said he just waded into the sea and chunted and threw up until it was all gone. (laughs) That is my (laughs) worst dolphin work story ever. Anyway, health and safety regulations would dictate, and that would never happen today. However, still one of the grossest stories. That and an exploding septic tank are my two favourite stories, but they both occurred about 30 years ago now. (laughs) Save that for another podcast. Okay, so um, Hannah, I just really want to um, thank you for sharing stories about your work and particularly for sharing your experience and your knowledge around, um, you know, trying to understand strandings, which it seems to me we're just not quite, we don't yet, do we? Unfortunately not, yes, we are trying to, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah. And for and to help support um, people, whether they're dock rangers or members of the public or visitors who want to help and knowing the kind of um, what to expect and how to prepare, how to train that's um been really useful too. but you know your message around giving wildlife their space is such an important one, and it is so hard for people when it comes to dolphins. And whales, sometimes I feel like penguins is a subcategory of this. Seals as well. Seals. People go bananas for some reason when they see dolphins or whales. And it, it, it almost goes against every kind of fibre of our being to not get up in their grill. But I think that's our message, isn't it? We just keep your space. Don't be a close talker. Go over there and watch them enjoying their life from over there whether that's in your boat on the beach
1: with a drone any of those correct yep given their space you know we all know you want to get close to our marine species but um, it's important to keep your distance um, to avoid stress and harm to the animals
0: Uh, And I think the other thing you've done has been a wee bit of a source of inspiration for all those up-and-coming marine uh, specialists and scientists out there to show them that there is, in fact, really important work to be done. And I'm sure we might
1: kind of expect to see people like that on our team. So it's nice to have a bit of career inspiration. Yeah, Uh, you're welcome. Um, It may not always be glamorous. You know, you might not be out counting dolphins, but... There's important and interesting work that can be done behind a desk too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well done. Thank you so much, Hannah. It's and been a pleasure. um
1: I look forward to hearing more about your work. Thanks. Thanks, Nick. <laughs>